step inside into the world of Lady Teal's Curios. Welcome to Lady Teal's Curios. Today we have Athena Driscoll on the show. Athena is a pansexual polyandrous person who identifies as hermaphroditic. She has three husbands and several dedicated playmate partner relationships. She spent eight years as a professional dominatrix and three years as a professional performing pirate. She is a practitioner of non-corporeal necromancy, blood sorcery, hoodoo, and occasionally does paranormal investigations. Today's episode, we cover it all, folks. Everything from intense personal trauma to talking to dead people and what it is like to be in a relationship with a pansexual polyandrous person. I did want to apologize ahead of time. There are a few snags where we experience some connection issues, but Athena's story is one that needs to be shared and encourages us all to stay curious. Athena, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I have led a somewhat strange life and continue to lead a somewhat strange life. Um, we could go into, you know, disturbing Gotham-esque background, but I don't think it's really necessary. Um, I am, <laughs> I am married to three men. I am a very happy and healthy functional polyamorous relationship that leans more on the aspect of polyandry, <clears throat> which for those that don't know is, uh, matriarch with several men that she is married to as opposed to the flip side which is more familiar i am a <laughs> i am a practitioner of non-corporeal necromancy and blood sorcery um i have been interested in pretty much all things macabre for as long as i can remember i spent a bit of time as a paranormal investigator um i actually just had a job a couple of weeks ago down in la for that first wow. one i've had in a while it's it's not a thing that I do professionally anymore. It's a word of mouth thing that I do for special cases at this point. Okay. But um I am a costumer. I am I am I am a lot of things. It's really just pick where you want to start and we can go from there. <laughs> okay. That is an awesome start. So let's talk a little bit about the polyamorous or in pansexual relationships because that's something that I'm not super familiar with and I know some of the audience will be very curious about that so of course um how did you how did you discover that you were of that sexual orientation um so to make a very long and convoluted story short um when I was younger, I never really understood the idea that, you know, I was only supposed to be attracted to boys or what was normal was to be attracted to boys. I found myself attracted to, well, lots of very, very different people. <laughs> and um, I went through, you know, some crazy identity crisis for a while in my teens, like we all do. You know, I thought maybe I was gay and then I thought maybe I was trans and no, I'm just very strange, and that's fine. But um, when I am attracted to a person, 
it has very little to do with uh, the physical. It has very little to do with their sense of gender or their sense of sex and has more to do with my attraction to them as a person or an individual. That's it's very like, interesting. That's, I, I was doing a little research on pansexuals before because I honestly have not talked to anyone or met anyone that is one. And it seemed like they all kind of said the same thing. Like they were more interested in the person as who they are, whether rather than what gender they are, or what orientation they are or anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm not going to speak for all of us because that seems, you know, rather presumptuous, but I will speak for just myself. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, um, I'll get into, you know, friendly arguments on occasion with people that are not terribly familiar or uneducated on the subject. And they're like, oh, you're just bi. And I'm like, no, um, because bi implies that I am attracted to men and women. You could be trans, you could be non-identifying, you could be intersex, you could be anything, it doesn't matter, and I will be attracted to you depending on your personality and how we get along together. So that's a weird argument that happens often, is people trying to inst institute this idea that pansexual is just, you know, a more impressive sounding bisexual. But it's, it is different. Um, bisexual has to do with sex. Mm -hmm. as in, you know, what you have in your pants. And pansexual has almost nothing to do with the sex. I, find that, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, definitely. I find that as uh, our modern age keeps moving forward, we're just having to come up with new terminology and new words to express how people feel because before everything was so I'm, I'm sure there were pansexual people before but it was so looked down upon that it created this way of thinking and there wasn't a space for it yeah there wasn't a space for it or a label for it or an understanding for it previously doesn't mean it doesn't exist right it just was unknown to the large populace right i think that's so one of the good things about the LGBTQ plus community today is that it's helping people become more aware that there's more than just gay and bi and there's a lot more out there. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting um, because like, you know, before we entered into this brave new era of like understanding and acceptance, which granted still needs some work. We're yes. not like 100% yet, and I don't even expect that we will be in my lifetime, but that's fine. Um, is that people are discovering that they are not alone. And I think that's a big part of it. And then every once in a while, unfortunately, there are people that don't find others that share in their identities or share in their desires or their fetishes or, you know, what they commune with on a deeper mm -hmm. level in that way. Um, but there's so much more information out there now and it's just kind of great. You know, people don't have to feel quite so hopeless anymore. That is but what anyway, is... we are digressing. Yes. <laughs> um, so how, if you don't mind me asking, how did you go about having, getting married to three different men? That's awesome. And I didn't even know that was legal. <laughs> So I am not legally married to them. 
the you know the United States, the government will not uh, <laughs> condone that. Okay. We had okay. a ceremony. Um, we had a ceremony. I am not legally married um, to any of them at this juncture. And you know, hopefully, maybe sometime in my lifetime, I can be able to do that legally. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to hold my breath on it. Um, how that came to be, um, I figured out that I was poly at a very young age, even though I did not have necessarily a good environment or a good outlet for it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I grew up one part in like a really old hippie town and one part in super rural, like minority land almost. (laughs) And like, yeah, no, having multiple relationships was not a thing uh, that was around when I was growing up and I still had the inclination for it. And all it really means is that I have the ability to be in love with more than one person at a time without that love being diminished amongst any one of the relationships. And, um, you know, poly is actually more difficult, I would say, than a closed monogamous relationship because it does not leave any room whatsoever for lies or deception or dishonesty. There are too many people involved to even try. (laughs) If you lie, it's found out very quickly. It's pointless to try. Um, But, you know, you have to be very comfortable in your own skin to be in a poly relationship. You have to understand yourself hopefully at the very least like yourself and even love yourself a little bit to be able to love that many people. Um, Not all polyamorous relationships are the same. Most of them have their own sort of like, you know, on brand for that particular group. It took me years to find a small collection of people that not only got along, but were also compatible in such a relationship dynamic and that I was compatible with each one of them and then compatible with all of them together. Like, it's not just as simple as going to the right place and being like, I choose you and like, you know, (laughs) got a collectible male Pokemon. It's not like that. Um, It's just like regular relationships and friendships. You have to find people that you work well with and work well with you. And like, you know, I myself continue to have, unhealthy relationships up until, you know, the year before I got married to my three husbands. (laughs) Um, I have been with each one of them for a number of years. Um, I have been with my husband, Robbie, for, uh, it'll be 10 years this year. I have been with, thank you very much. Uh, We met through very strange circumstance. (laughs) Um, I have been with my husband, Adam, for seven, almost eight years, and I have been with my husband, Thaddeus, for almost six years. Wow, that's, um, that's well, impressive for most people anyways, and you have three different people that you're dealing with. <laughs> well, like, they are, they are all very different people, which in my particular flavor of polyamory works very well because I am a very complex and bizarre (laughs) and often, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Conflicting needs person. 
it would be immoral and unfair of me to try and expect one person to fulfill all of my needs. Like I, that just sounds like hell for whoever that individual would potentially have been. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, it's friggin' wild, man. <laughs> wild. So do you all live together or is it kind of like a come and go type thing? Um, like I give us a uh, right now inside your life. Uh, right now um, we just bought a house in Washington um, because we live in California, which is the land of high intensity expense. <laughs> um, we have to do things a little bit, you know, not ideally, which is frustrating to all of us. But um, we bought a house in Washington, fairly close to Seattle. And my husband, Adam, moved up there last year, um, getting everything ready and prepped. And then in a few months from now, my husband, Thaddeus, will be going up to join him. And then the year after that, myself and Robbie will be going up to join everybody. And we will all live under one roof again. And that'll be lovely. Well, I hear Washington is very beautiful. So that does sound lovely. It's very, like, cold and wet, which actually I prefer. <laughs> I do better in cold than heat, so that'll be just fine. Um, I am wildly pleased about that. And then uh, hopefully within um, a year to two years after we all move up and get settled, um, we're going to work on the having children portion of our life plan together. And I'm sure so, that will be a very interesting and wild ride as well. <laughs> it will be because like, you know, Polly makes things somewhat more complicated because, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not exactly given the, uh, the blueprints and like, you know, the schematic of this is a relationship and how you make it work. You're given that if you're monogamous and like heteronormative, that's, you know, narrative that we've had forever. But in this, it's like, how do you do this fairly and how do you do this well? Um, and I have to get very practical and very um, almost non-emotional to make hard decisions for that that are fair. Because first and foremost, me personally, I am concerned with what is fair and safest and healthiest for everybody. I think that's a very so, practical like, way of looking at it. <laughs> Well, you know, there's different ways to look at it. Like, do I have children with the partner that is the oldest and has, you know, the most um, potential physical ail ailing aspects so that, you know, I have children with them before they are unable to? Mm -hmm. um, do I have children with the person that I've been with the longest? Um, like, you know, there's different ways to look at it. And we've all discussed it and we haven't settled quite yet, but we're worrying about that after we all move up because trying to decide that now is a little gnarly without all living together. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, one thing that I have always been curious about, because this is just me as a person, I, when, you know, people talk about, could you ever be in an open relationship or a relationship with more than one person? I personally could not be because I am a very jealous person. <laughs> so how did you deal with when you were discovering that you were pansexual and, and wanted to be in a polyamorous relationship, 
Um, how did you handle jealousy? So this is by and large, like one of the top three questions that I get asked <laughs> because people have hard, a hard time with jealousy. Um, there is this weird myth that if you are in an open relationship or you are in a polyamorous relationship or you are in a polysexual relationship, you should not have jealousy. Um, that is wrong. <laughs> jealousy is a human emotion and you're going to have it whether you want to or not. It doesn't matter how secure your relationship is. Like jealousy is just there. It is a very like deep animal brain like trigger thing. Um, so once you understand that you are going to have jealousy and your partners are going to have jealousy, you've already taken like the biggest step in the whole process. But um, honestly, dealing with jealousy is just a lot of very transparent communication. And most of the time, it has very little to do with feelings of like possession, so to speak, or inadequacy, and more to do with a sense of unfairness and betrayal of what is important. It's not the sex, it's what it represents. It's not, you know, somebody touching somebody else, it's the cheating, it's the feeling like somebody else is sharing your space and you didn't agree to that. Um, for me personally, I have very little jealousy, but it does happen. Um, I am very partial to impersion. I enjoy seeing my partners enjoying themselves in other healthy relationships. And I enjoy knowing the other people that are involved with my partners. Um, I very much like being involved because I view it as a very extended family. You know, I want to know my metamors. I want to know what they are about. I want to know who they are as people. And also, if I sense that they are a toxic person, I want to nip that in the bud as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a very excellent explanation. I, I don't know why most people assume that polyamorous individuals just don't feel jealousy, but that totally makes sense because it is just an instinctual feeling that all humans feel, and I can't imagine just trying to repress that. Well, you don't. You never try to repress it. Like, that only leads to a living hell. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, I have had, I have had the jealousy conversation um, with each one of my partners, you know, and it's, I, I have sort of <laughs> almost beaten it into their brains. The moment you feel negatively, you need to talk to me. Do not sit on it. Do not wait. You talk to me as soon as you are able, and I will do the same. And often, just the act of saying, I felt jealousy when this happened. This made me feel this way, and I don't like it. Often, just even voicing that, evaporates the jealousy it's 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 friggin' wild it's, it's bizarre how it works um and sometimes you know it's just a matter of somebody needing some extra validation like mm -hmm. um here's a good example um this happens a lot in polyamorous relationships where you will have you know a very dedicated um relationship or set of relationships that have been together for a certain amount of time, you know, 
however those individuals define a long period of time. Me personally, I define anything over two years a long period of time. Anything under two years is still subject to being developed, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But that's me. Um, <clears throat> and a new relationship will come and they go through the honeymoon period. When you're in the honeymoon period of a relationship, you want to spend as much time as possible with that person, getting to know them and getting into the intimate parts of their brain and their emotions and their heart and, well, yeah, their pants, depending. <laughs> and, you know, they want to spend all their time with that person or just a disproportionate amount of time. And that, again, much like jealousy, is a completely normal human, like animal brain thing. Wanting to spend time with a new interest is normal. It is common. It is, I would dare say, healthy. But, of course, during that honeymoon period, the previous relationships may feel left out or left behind or not paid attention to. The balance of attention and care has become overshot in one direction. And that's what's causing the jealousy. It's not that somebody else is getting attention. It's somebody else is getting more attention than I am. I am not getting my due amount of attention. I am not getting my due amount of consideration and care. Got it. That makes and a lot of sense. It, it sounds like basically the key to any relationship, no matter how many people are involved, is clear communication. Yeah, no, you really have to like learn how to be frighteningly honest and transparent about your emotions and about your thoughts and be able to differentiate the difference between how something feels and how something is. Well, I like a lot of people, <laughs> that's an easy thing to get caught up in. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, you're good. I, I just appreciate this peak inside your life because it's something, you know, that I've heard of and I've seen on TV, but I don't, think it's always accurately represented on TV. So it's nice to talk to somebody who is actually living it and experiencing it because now myself and the audience can understand a little bit better. Um, it's not portrayed very well in most medias um, or mediums, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Either that or they just barely scratch the surface. They give just enough to like, you know, feel the validation and and then move on from there. Well, we and it's, I appreciate it, but at the same time, come on, guys, be better. (laughs) Yes, it can always be better. (laughs) It can always definitely be better. (laughs) Um, We've, as a society, we've got a long way to go. I think we can both agree on that. (laughs) It's true. It's 100% true. Um, Polly is not for everyone. Some people are genuinely meant to be monogamous. Some people are genuinely meant to only have a certain type of relationship with a certain type of person at a certain time in their life. Some people are meant to be polyamorous. Some people are meant to be just polysexual. Like, there is no universal relationship that works for everybody. And Mm -hmm. it's foolish to try and think that you should try to conform to any one of them other than the one that feels right and good and appropriate for you. I'm sorry. I know I'm getting preachy. (laughs) No, I think that's very well put. I, I love it. And I think it's amazing that there's 
people like you who are brave enough to tell their story and and are open enough because and it also has to deal do with you know now people are becoming more accepting so people feel a little bit freer in talking about it but I mean, without people like you, then the rest of us would have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so I, I, I definitely appreciate it. Um, I, so we've talked a little bit about your personal life, and I would like to get into some of the necromancy. I don't know if you consider that. I mean, I'm sure it's part of your personal life. Um, do you do it professionally? Or can, why don't you tell us first um, what necromancy is? And then you mentioned non-corporeal necromancy. Am I saying that right? Non-corporeal. Okay. Um, so there is a difference in the necromancies. There is corporeal necromancy and non-corporeal necromancy. Uh, corporeal necromancy is the one that everybody hears about, you know, when they play D&D or like, you know, they're friggin' watching some eldritch shit, um, <laughs> which is, you know, you're raising dead bodies and, you know, you have your contingent of zombies that you can command and like, you know, tell you things from the grave and all that. Um, yes, reanimation is the more like glorified, romanticized um, fantasized part of uh, necromancy. Um, I do not practice that predominantly because it's very hard. And also because I have no desire to raise something like that. It seems unethical to me. Um, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. Um, <laughs> Non-corporeal necromancy literally means I communicate with the dead. Um, I commune, speak with, and keep company with the dead. Um, how that translates in terms of what is dead kind of depends on the situation. Um, I have, um, I had a very strange childhood. Um, my family has this really bizarre hereditary ESP sixth sense spooky thing that gets passed down for whatever reason. And I know it sounds ridiculous. Trust me. I know how ridiculous it sounds. Um, every firstborn daughter of every generation ends up with this stuff. We end up having some weird kind of spooky psychic crap. And um, I'm the only one that I know of that specifically works with the dead and specifically works with blood and specifically works with bone. Um, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-aunt, my great-great-great-grandmother, um, they were more nature and psychic based. Um, no one's really quite sure where I came from in that respect. I blame my father's side of the family, but that's the whole <laughs> thing. Um, if you want, you could say I'm a medium, but I don't like that term personally because I, it sounds like, you know, I'm personally delivering messages from the dead to people. No, honestly, I just spend a lot of time with the dead. <laughs> I spend a lot of time with dead people. I spend a lot of time with dead things. I spend a lot of time, um, for lack of a better term, uh, dabbling in osteology and taxidermy. Um, I, when I was a kid, almost every home that I have ever lived in has been haunted. Um, 
you know, I was seeing disincarnate, which is, you know, the more grown up word for ghost. Um, I have been seeing disincarnate since I was really small and communing with them, talking with them, engaging with them in one capacity or another as long as I can remember. And when you're a kid, that is really confusing and really scary, you know, because you question whether or not you're crazy because <laughs> everybody tells you there's nothing there and you very clearly see there's something is there. And then through trial and error, you discover just how valid that is or invalid. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if that answers that question. Yeah, definitely. There, I have so many questions. I, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> um, when you were a kid, what did the disincarnate look like to you? And has it changed over the years? Um, so here's kind of fascinating thing um when we are children we do not have um societal programming in place yet you know we're we're still new mm -hmm. we're just experiencing everything as raw as possible in the panorama that is life as bluntly as possible and so as a result um you will hear people that have had experiences like this or have you know strange i don't want to use the word abilities because that sounds very x-men but um, affinities for the strange, I suppose, would be a better statement for me to use. Um, when we're children, we tend to see them much more clearly, um, much like an actual person, a live, living, breathing person that is in this plane sitting across from us and interacting with us. They're solid, they're real. They have a voice that sounds solid and is real. And as we get older, that becomes weakened because we're told over and over again, you are wrong, that is not there. That is not there, that is not there. You are crazy, you're just pretending. Hmm. And so over time, we end up putting a filter in our own minds to sort of dispel these things and make them less sharp. Um, when I was a kid, um, I had a weird dabbling of several things the one of which that I, I really, really wish I hadn't fucked with. I really, oh, I'm sorry. I should have asked if I can curse. It never you're, me. you're fine. It's an adult show. <laughs> okay. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> you're good. <laughs> I just assume, you know, FCC, whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, I used to, uh, oh God, I hate using all the terminology just because it sounds so Stephen King. Marvel comic, but um, I used to have a very well-developed sense of um, telekinesis, or no, sorry, uh, telepathy. It was very frightening to me as a child that I could hear what the people around me were thinking, and I could hear what people were thinking up to three blocks away. I did my own series of trial and error and like data gathering on this as I was growing up, trying to figure out if I was crazy. Um, and right before I hit puberty at about 12, it was becoming so distracting and so just exhausting that I started to instigate a mental block to stop hearing it because it was so hard. It was so difficult just to try and live life constantly hearing everybody's thoughts all around you all the time. Wow. Never mind what people were thinking about you. 
And it took about two years to the point where I stopped hearing everybody's voices. I stopped hearing the thoughts of everybody around me. And if I focus really hard now, I might be able to hear some of the thoughts from the person in the room next to me, maybe. But it's, I, I cycled it out of myself. I just, I squashed it out of myself, which I wish I hadn't, but I really don't know any other way to have tried to control it, <laughs> mute it, filter that filter. I don't know. But um, yeah, no, it was exhausting, terrifying, and kind of terrible. But um, as I've gotten older, I do not see the disincarnate as clearly as I used to. Do you think that is... I see outlines and shapes? Um, do you, Do you think that is because pardon? of the societal programming that we've put upon ourselves? Do you think, like, as you have gotten older, it's diminished because of all of those thoughts? Well, it's interesting because it went through a cycle, you know, um, during the period of time where I was trying my hardest to fit in like a normal person was when I saw them the least. Hmm. And as I got older and started to try and regain that and accept that part of myself and explore it, it became more sharp and clear. So I do genuinely believe that societal programming, the idea of what is instituted as good and wrong and like normal and abnormal certainly has an effect on your perception, whether that it is your perception of yourself or the perception of the world around you. Because largely human beings are social animals and more than anything, we want to be part of the group typically in some capacity. We may not always want to play the same role. We may not always want to play the same, you know, status, but we certainly want to be part of the group somehow. I don't know if that answered that. Yeah, definitely. When you are talking with the dead or the, what was the term that you used for them? Disincarnate. Disincarnate. Because they are no longer incarnate. Disincarnate. So when, you, when you were talking with the disincarnate, are are they reaching out to you, or do you have to reach out to them? And what what do they talk about? What do they like to talk about with you? All right. So here's the thing: the dead are people too, and just like people. They have their own motivations. They have their own way of doing things. They have their own weird personality quirks. Some of them want to be left the fuck alone. (laughs) Some of them are really socially shy. Some of them will talk your fucking ear off about shit you could not care less about. (laughs) They're just like people. So I don't know how to answer that other than like, it's just like dealing with people. They're just dead. (laughs) Um, It all depends on, you know, the situation, what kind of person it is, and the reason that either you are reaching out to them or they are reaching out to you. Um, First and foremost, a lot of the time, they're just lonely. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just a lot of loneliness. Um, And from what has been expressed to me, um, being disincarnate, being disembodied, being 
stuck in a loop of suspended non-animation, uh, depending on the individual. It's, it's crazy. You go crazy, you feel crazy, and you know that you exist, but at the same time, you don't exist. And so having somebody who is alive and breathing and has blood in their veins and air in their lungs and electricity running through their nerves, who's experiencing the here and now of this plane, makes you feel more stable. Having them acknowledge you, having them talk to you, makes you feel real, makes you feel stable, makes you feel valid, makes you feel like more than just a wandering thought. Hmm. That it just, it's very beautiful, yet lonely sounding. It sounds like a poem. Um, it should come as no surprise that I am a goth kid and I, you know, went through my customary lifelong cycle of loving poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so through your experiences, do you believe that there is a specific afterlife and that the people you are encountering are stuck in like the whatever the tunnel to the next afterlife? What do you believe? All right. Um, so now we're going to enter into a strange line of conversation <laughs> as if all of this wasn't strange enough. Um, so I have two systems when it comes to my personal perception of such things. I have my no system, K-N-O-W, and my belief system. A belief system is where you give the benefit of the doubt as to whether or not something exists. Even if you don't think that it, you know, should, or it makes sense that it might, you give it the benefit of the doubt. You say to yourself, why not? It could be. Enough people are talking about it. Enough people, you know, seem to have some sort of connection with it. It must be real in somewhere at some point in time to some people. So I assume it's real somewhere. Um, my no system are things that I have experienced firsthand time and again and have confirmed and reconfirmed and gathered d data through experience on that they have become things that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt to be a fact or a reality for me as an individual. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so um, I think largely people create their own afterlives. I think that whatever you think is going to happen to you, even if it's just a fleeting thought, that is what happens to you. And a lot of the time, your own guilt or your own inadequacy or your own fear will put you in that place, whether or not you actively want to believe that is what you believe. And, you know, largely, some people don't have any idea what it is. So they don't go anywhere. And there you just cease to exist like they were never there. It all depends on the individual and, you know, the how and why surrounding the, I guess, situation of their death. Um, if you really want to know what you believe as an individual, have a near-death experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I've actually 
not had a near death experience, but I have epilepsy and I've had a few out of body experiences during seizures. And that has always been very interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, anytime I've had one of my seizures in the past, it's always, it's a little scary because you know, you completely go unconscious. And that's, I think, the closest that I've ever been to dying. And hopefully, um, that's all I'll have to go through <laughs> until I get old. But I can imagine that other people have some crazy experiences when it comes to a near-death situation. I've had a number of near-death situations. Um, I was declared dead twice when I was younger, both from drowning. And I was <laughs> um, on support for a while, but I had a very terrifying experience where I am 100% certain I was, I was dead. My body was being forced to function, but I was dead. Wow. Um, that was a very... That is an experience I would not wish on anyone. Where I went, what I saw, and what happened is not something I would wish on anyone. Um, it was horrific and lonely and terrifying. But that's conversation for another time unless you really want to talk about it. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk about that today, but did that experience maybe change your perspective and affect you so that you think about the afterlife differently? Uh, no, honestly, it just confirmed what I thought. Um, it confirmed everything that I thought. The, it, <laughs> it's more apt to say that it changed my perspective on living. Um, um, death was never something that frightened me. It was never something that I dreaded. <clears throat> um, I had a very difficult childhood and a very difficult um, adolescence where I lost huge portions of my family, um, usually through very horrific and painful deaths. And when I was a very small child, I assumed that the reason why the people I loved that were, that they were dying was because it was me. Oh, like I was some sort of black luck charm. That's and horrible. That moment, I allowed myself to love somebody Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> the moment I allowed myself to love somebody, um, they were marked to die. And so I became suicidal when I was about eight years old. And not because I wanted life to stop, not because I hated life, not because of the pain that I was experiencing, but because I didn't want good people to die. I did not want beautiful people that I cared about to die because that wasn't fair to them. Um... <sighs> that persisted for years. Um, I have tried to kill myself in more ways than is probably reasonable. Um, the only two methods I did not ever try, and it was because the uh, margin for error seemed terrifying. I never tried to shoot myself and I never tried to OD on, um, um, oh God, what's the word? I never tried to OD on hard drugs. Um, both of them seemed like they had a really high capacity for me to live through it fucked up. Um, and I wasn't about to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
And then in my teens, my perspective on death and the reason why people that I cared about were being taken uh, changed radically. And I started to view death as this very kind and loving and protective, almost parental figure. Um, death was a reward and only the best people got taken. And the fact that death rejected me over and over again made me very bitter. Um, I developed a really hated, hateful and spiteful relationship with death through my teens. Um, up until I was about 20 years old. Um, I'm going to share a little memory, if I may. Sure. <clears throat> um, so when I was 20, um, some of uh, the more important people in my family uh, that I was kind of holding on to and trusting wouldn't be taken died. Um, they were the only Americans on an Indonesian flight from one small island to another on New Year's Day, and their plane disappeared. Straight up, Bermuda Triangle disappeared. And all they found later were some fragments of skull clicking to, uh, clinging to a two-foot section of the wing, some fuel, and the black box homing beacon um, on the bottom of the ocean in between the two islands. That's all they found. No people, no luggage, nothing else, just gone. And uh, my two cousins were, everybody always has nothing but good things to say about people when they die. And often they're exaggerated. Like people feel this weird, almost guilty need to over glorify someone just because they're dead. Um, I don't have that problem. If somebody was a bastard while they're alive, I have no problem stating that they were a bastard at their funeral. But um, my cousins were genuinely good people that would have genuinely made a very big difference in the world. They were incredibly intelligent and going fucking places. Hmm. My cousin Stephanie wasn't even 19 and she was already on her last semester of having a master's in uh, uh, neurosurgery. She learned uh, nine different languages. She was doing volunteer work for children's hospitals, firefighting, orphanages, um, different other hospitals and city morgues or, you know, medical examiner, whatever they friggin' call it now. They were, they were very, very smart and very, very kind and driven people. And the world is a much darker place without them in it, not just because they were my cousins, but because of the caliber of person they were. I know that seems like a lot of information, but I feel the need to like have people understand it is not just my relationship with them. They were genuinely good people. And um, I went into a really dark place and I had made the decision to commit suicide in a way that I wouldn't fail from. Um, I'm not going to talk about the how or why, but I was determined to find any possible way that was absolutely 100% surefire to kill myself. And I was in the process of cleaning uh, mine and my first husband's house. And I lifted the couch cushion um, and there was a tarot card laying face down underneath it. Hmm. I knew it was a tarot card because of the design on the back and the size of the card. 
However, it was not a deck that I owned. I had never seen this card before. I had never seen this deck before. And I was like, all right, all right. Tell you what, Death. Let's play, let's play chicken. I'm going to pick up that card. In a tarot deck, there are 72 cards, only one of which is Death. If I pick that card up and it is any card but Death, I am going to see that as a sign to kill myself indisputably, and I will die tonight, and that'll be that. And if it is the death card, I will go ahead and keep living. That sound okay to you, death? Awesome. I pick it up. It's the death card. Oh my God. <laughs> still don't know how. Still don't know how it came to be in my house. Didn't belong to anyone. Didn't belong to me. Had never seen it before. Don't know where it came from. Wow. Um, and after that specific moment, I developed a much more meaningful, positive, healthy, and intimate relationship with death. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. <laughs> there that, you go. That's incredible. That, I mean, obviously, horrible circumstances, but the... Wow. I, I mean, that's an incredible story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, you're welcome. I still have the card. Is, is that one of the things I, I noticed some of your artwork and you mentioned um, you do some taxidermy. Is that kind of one of the motivating factors behind that art? Um, I would say so. Um, my relationship with death when I was a child, you know, when it wasn't connected to people that I loved, um, I found it beautiful. I found, you know, the dead bird on the sidewalk lying at awkward angles with its wings spread and its tongue lolling out of its mouth. I found that beautiful and strange and it invoked an emotion in me that I didn't know how to describe other than beauty. When I find bones and I clean them and I go through the process of, you know, sanitizing them and whitening them and then doing artwork on them or display with them, it's beautiful. And I am putting in an intention of love and care into it. Just because something is dead and no longer alive doesn't mean that it is purposeless or pointless. I myself am very attracted to taxidermy and hope to learn it in the future but um I think that's a pretty wide consensus of why many people enjoy taxidermy there's definitely something beautiful and peaceful about it and it's giving purpose to something that um almost makes it as if it's living again well it'll never be alive like it was again right. But it certainly is now filled with a life of its own. And I just, I don't know. I guess I'm too sympathetic or too soft or too sentimental something. <laughs> it breaks my heart to see things discarded um, mm -hmm. that still have potential for beauty. Not even like necessarily usefulness, but beauty in specific. Mm -hmm. And there is this bizarre relationship that humans have with their mortality. Um, they are fascinated and attracted 
to death. But we, as a species progress, the more technological we become, the more evolved we are, the more we are trying to have some sort of mastery over death. And it's honestly very sad to me. You know, it wasn't that long ago that people died in their homes and we took care of their bodies in our homes. It wasn't that long ago that we said our goodbyes to their corpses. We held their hands. We sat with them all night. We cleaned them. It really wasn't that long ago. Mm -hmm. And now, for most people, even the idea of doing that makes their skin crawl. And I find that very sad. Fun fact. You know the living room of a house? Yes. You know what that was originally called pre-1950? Pre-1950. I, I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> the funeral parlor. The funeral parlor. Often just called the parlor room. Okay. Living I've, room. I've yeah, definitely... Living rooms were originally for doing um, death vigils. And in 1950, when we started becoming more uncomfortable with the idea of dying, um, America largely decided that they wanted to do away with death in their homes. And so they reclaimed life by calling the funeral parlor the living room. Very interesting. I've definitely heard the term parlor used before, but I had not heard funeral parlor. So I'm going to have to look that up a little bit more. <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, I love and adore death, and I love and adore and appreciate life. And I feel like you cannot fully understand either of them without full acknowledgement of the other. And that was mostly what I took away from my experience most recently of almost dying. Um, I always wanted to die the entirety of my life. And then I reached a point where, you know, I was okay with dying happen when it, happening whenever it was going to happen. And then I was in a coma and on life support and had a very low percentage of waking up and a very low percentage even past that of waking up not a vegetable. And um, man, life became so beautiful. Life became so amazing to me. Being able to walk, being able to speak, being able to be in the company of people you care about, being able to breathe, being able to do things your own self, being able to feed yourself, enjoying the sensations of the world around you. All of that became precious and very sharp technicolor relief. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know how I'm going to follow up this interview because <laughs> this is so beautiful and so motivating for people just to go out and live their day-to-day -day lives and and appreciate what they have around them it's it's friggin crazy like it really is um you know I am no longer as able-bodied and pain-free as I was before um my accident 
And I can tell you right now that even now, with as debilitated as I am and as hard just living daily life is, and as worn out and tired and constantly in a state of chronic pain as I am, I am happier than I have been at any given time in my life. And that is fucking wild. (laughs) (laughs) Is that kind of what spurred you to try so many different things? And I I know you mentioned you're working as a performing pirate, and that's got to be insanely exciting. That was years ago. Um, (laughs) Pirates have kind of fallen out of fashion, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, I did that when I was younger, before my accident, and you know, when I had far more energy and far more time and far more non-pain. Got it. Okay. (laughs) Being a performing pirate was, uh, oh God, it was so great. (laughs) It was so great. Like if that could just be a fucking like 40 hour a week profession, I would be the happiest person on earth. But the work was never consistent. Like when you're doing any kind of performing for, you know, your friggin' bread and butter, it's hard. It is hard to get gigs. It is hard to maintain that as a way to make a living wage. Like it's almost impossible. The only way you get to do that is if you do it in like almost a sellout fashion, like people that perform at Vegas can do that. Uh, People that perform on stage um, for like, say um, big theater, like Broadway, they can do that. But most people, it's so hard. It is so very incredibly hard. Like, it's crazy how hard it is. Even when I was at my best and things were going the best, like, I would have maybe three gigs a month. And, you know, those gigs would pay uh, anywhere between, like, three and, like, $1,000 an mm-hmm. event. Like, 300 to 1000 mm-hmm. It depended on the gig and where and what was happening. Um, but... It was so much fun. I had to learn <laughs> sword play. I had to learn sea shanties, um, friggin' spending, you know, 12 plus hours in a corset while like screaming and drinking and, you know, sword fighting with life steel. It was friggin' awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was so wonderful. I miss it so much. <laughs> Well, I noticed on your Instagram that you do a lot of different makeup and costumes. Did you learn some of that from working as a performing artist? Um, Honestly, no. Um, Almost everything I know has been through my own research and trial and error. Um, I was taught very little um, when it comes to any of the things that I am good at. (laughs) (laughs) which feels almost insulting when it comes to education because it's like man (laughs) (sighs) I think that's but uh sometimes the best way to learn is by teaching yourself because that often means you're passionate about what you are learning so you're going to devote more time into learning it (laughs) Oh, it's completely true. Um, the other aspect of that that um, I feel like doesn't get talked about very often when it comes to any sort of art or performing art or art that you are using 
to gain anything monetary. That, that term starving artist kind of applies the whole way around with all the arts. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of art you're practicing. You're, you're never really making as much as you should be for what you're putting into it and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. But um, because you're poor, you try to find different ways to do different things. And then you end up discovering that, hey, this medium and this method that is used for this thing that is completely unrelated to the thing that I'm applying it to works better and is about one-tenth the cost. (laughs) (laughs) So you end up finding all kinds of crazy little secrets and, like, you know, formulas that no one else would have ever thought existed. And that's the thing that I appreciate is that we become these, like, scientists sitting there in our little labs so do you use any of your necromancy when you're crafting or making your art oh absolutely um um, on occasion um i used to do it more frequently before i developed a uh rather grievous allergy to the clay i was using um i used to make occult-based jewelry and I would put a lot of thaumaturgy and a lot of intention and sigil work into the pieces that I made. And I still do make some of them, just not anywhere near as much because of my clays and can't achieve the same method that I was, same level of detail. But, um, you know, I worked with stone, bone, teeth, um, depending on the situation, like biologicals from clients, blood, saliva, hair. Um, all sorts of stuff. Very, very witchy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would say that, you know, my sense of the spiritual certainly gets worked into almost everything I do in some capacity. Um, when you're an artist and you're making things, especially things that you truly love and enjoy, you are putting yourself into it. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole entire process is a thaumaturgic event. It is a, it is a spell in and of itself. You are creating, you are performing an act of alchemy. You are putting your soul, your blood, your sweat, your time, your mind, your imagination into these things. It's a thing you are birthing and it is sometimes a very fast process and sometimes a very slow and painful one. That's very true. I work as a photographer for my I guess day job you could call it and mm-hmm. it's it's not always <laughs> the easiest job and you have lulls and you have high periods and and it is one of the things I realized very early on was that I put so much of myself into it but I could not take any critiques personally and when you work in the art field, there's always going to be somebody that loves your work and hates your work. (laughs) Oh, of course. You're going to have the flip side of both of those, and you're going to have (laughs) an entire spectrum of everything in between. Yes. So when you are um, doing necromancy and talking about it with other people, do you have a certain go-to regimen or is it do people request you to do it or is it something that's just part of your day-to-day life 
Um, kind of all of the above. Um, it really depends on the situation where I am at that juncture in time and what kind of people are involved in that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I am, even though it's melting my skin and I keep having to take breaks to heal. Um, I'm in the process of making an, <clears throat> a talisman for a client um, that is very Salema, very Aleister Crowley chemical wedding, you know, very heavy, heavy magic based, very mm-hmm. heavy magic based. And um, they approached me and were looking for, you know, this theme in specific. And, you know, they wanted specific things involved in it. And I made some suggestions based on what it was. I did some things differently than I normally would because of what this person wanted. And also the impression that I got um, energetically from the person themselves. So it all depends. It really all depends. Um, There have been cases where, you know, like, say, it's apparent to me that from the very, very beginning, I should be mixing their blood into the clay before I even start making a shape. Um, There are other instances where it's like, no, this is supposed to have my hair involved. No, this is supposed to have grave dirt involved. No, this is supposed to have, you know, bone uh, being burned and the smoke is supposed to permeate through it. It's each and every single thing has its own needs, much like people. Mm-hmm. And my only go-to, I would say, is that I assume every single thing is special by itself. And so it deserves a certain amount of attention and consideration because it is special in and of itself. And I'm prepared to give it whatever it is that it needs or wants. <clears throat> well, we have talked now for over an hour and I don't want to keep you much longer, but do you, for a final parting thought, do you have any advice for people out there who are maybe struggling with their sexuality or maybe someone who's interested in necromancy but doesn't know where to begin or any advice for people out there who you may relate to? Um, certainly. In terms of sexuality, never be ashamed of what you want and what you need. There are people out there that share your same wants and needs and are your reflection. You will find somebody out there that will fill at least part of it. Do not feel ashamed if it feels selfish. Don't be afraid to to communicate as long as you communicate openly and transparently. You will receive nothing but rewards eventually. Sure, you're going to have to go through some assholes that think you're wrong. But if they think you're wrong for sharing who you are and being brave enough to be genuine and transparent with them, they are not the person for you. Anyone that makes you feel ashamed of who you are or afraid is not somebody that you should be with. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they are. In terms of polyamory, the same thing applies. Do not think you are wrong or bad for loving more than one person at a time. Love is not supposed to know any bounds. It's not supposed to make sense. 
it is just a thing that happens to you and you experience and you give and others experience from you. Again, never feel ashamed or wrong for how you feel. It is not what you feel that is good or bad. It is your actions and reactions to the people around you that affects them and you negatively or positively. But any feeling you ever have at any given time is valid. Your feelings are always valid. It is just what you do with them. In terms of darker spirituality and death work and necromancy and blood sorcery, again, just be honest with yourself about what and who you are. If you have an inclination toward the macabre, if you have an inclination toward death, if you feel a deeper relationship with death in any capacity, whether it is active death, it is past death, or it is the mere ghostly memory of death, and you are wandering trying to find that lost soul of death somewhere. It doesn't matter. Follow it. Everybody's path is a little bit different. In terms of where to go to find out more, the internet is a magical, beautiful place. And there are some fantastic resources out there. But I can't really give you a specific without knowing exactly what you think you need um, when it comes to dealing with the dead, with the disincarnate. If you do feel the dead around you, if you do see the disincarnate, if they do try to speak to you or you feel them and want to speak to them, there are different methods that work for different ones. They are just like people. Talk to them like people. Do not be afraid. Never be afraid. Be cautious certainly, but never be afraid. Let them know that you are open to communication, but you are not open to any harm coming to your person, that you are in control of your own destiny and your own self, and that for purposes of communication, you are 100% open, but that is where the line is drawn, and stay firm to that. <clears throat> um, <laughs> performing arts. <laughs> Uh, performing arts, honestly, it depends on what your art is, where you are, and who you know. I hate to say it, but who you know has a lot to do with it. Like, you need to learn what is popular in your area. You need to learn what is successful in your area. And then try to find if your flavor of what you can do and what you are can fit into it. And you're going to have to be pretty fucking tenacious about that shit. <laughs> there is no time and no space for you to be mousy. Like, that won't help you. It's a big world out there, and it is flooded with people. You need to make yourself see. Uh, that is all I can think to say on that specifically. <laughs> I think that was just perfect. I very much appreciate you coming on, Athena. Do you want to share any of your social media handles so people can follow your creative pursuits? Uh, certainly. Um, <clears throat> I am perfectly fine with uh, people messaging me. Um, I have no problem answering questions as long as they are genuine questions of curiosity. If you come to troll my inbox, I will shut you the fuck down. <laughs> um, if you want to find me on Facebook, um, Athena Driscoll, just like Driscoll Strawberries, um, I usually have some sort of overly gothy picture as my profile. 
Um, that's more social than anything else. Um, on Instagram, I go by Leannon's Boone, all as one word, L-E-A-N-A-N-S-B-O-O-N. Um, that is predominantly my artist profile. Um, I do a phenomenal amount of my sale of work through there and also Facebook. Same thing for Etsy, Leanne and Spoon. You can find me on there. Um, I don't have much in there at this current juncture in time. I will likely be leaving Etsy soon and either going on to uh, Big Cartel or Linktree. Um, yeah, but I am perfectly fine if anybody wants to message me and ask questions or if they just are curious about something or want some sort of guidance on something they feel that I can help them with. I have no problem providing that. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. And thank you. I cannot thank you enough for breaking down your life and getting incredibly personal with us. That means a lot. And I have a feeling I'll be talking to you again because I'm sure this was only the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> I am more than happy to come back on. Um, I, I don't mind getting personal. I feel that people should be more personal and more honest about themselves. And that most of what's wrong with society as a whole are people feeling like they cannot be themselves in some capacity. So I have no problem going anywhere you want to go in conversation.